Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today, we bring you our sixth big night in of lockdown, which we recorded on Saturday night in front of a lively, very engaged audience. And thanks so much to all of you who joined us. Let us know what you thought of it or get in touch about anything else on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. Or you can email us on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. And please, if you haven't already, do go and subscribe to the podcast and maybe tell your friends why it's a good idea to listen to the podcast. But back to today's episode. It really was a great evening with the wonderful theatre maker, Olwen Fuere. So without any further ado, here it is, our big night in, with thanks as always to Green and Blacks. So she was born in Ireland to Breton parents and she's a writer, producer, theatre maker. And the best description I have um, read of her is a review, I think a few years ago in The Guardian, where somebody said, if Alwyn Ferreira was just sitting on the stage doing absolutely nothing, it would be completely compelling. And that's the thing to say about her. Um, she's been working solidly since the 1970s in film and theatre. I'll just n- name a couple of the films. She's worked with Sean Penn in This Must Be The Place and The Survivalist. And my friend today was reminding me about a film called Mandy with Nicolas Cage, where she gets her head chopped off. So loads of different things. And then from theatre, you remember her from Salome in the Gate, which was unbelievable. And in 2013, she wrote an incredible piece called River Run, which toured all over the world, which in which she evokes the voice of the River Liffey in Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. So welcome to Alban Ferry. Thank you. <laughs> Um, thanks so much for joining us. I have to tell you all that Owen, can you believe this, is a Zoom virgin. Totally. Have you, have you met one of those lately? <laughs> Your first time. Totally, my first time. And also, uh, I'm totally overwhelmed by all the faces I'm seeing. So well, you can uh, always go to speaker view if it's freaking you out too much. <laughs> speaker view, where's that? <laughs> <laughs> top right, top oh, right. Oh yeah, get it. Yeah. Okay, I'll stay with it now though because I'm I'm quite moved by seeing it's all very the faces. Moving. I know. <laughs> I'm glad you're staying with it. It's lovely to see everyone. So why have you not been on Zoom? What's going on? I don't know. I mean, you know, like I'm a hermit at heart. And but the work that I do involves all, you know, communication, very intense communication with people all the time. So when all of this paused, I just felt um, this was my opportunity to take my 40 days in the desert, which I'm always talking about needing. And um I keep postponing it because something comes up and said, oh, no, I really want to do that. So postpone the time out. So I had my 40 days in the desert and I thought, no, now now it's about, you know, lying low, being quiet. Don't try not to work. Try not to produce anything. Just be and just listen. And so Zoom is like, as it is just now looking at all the faces. (laughs) And I just felt, well, if I can if I can communicate with somebody on the phone, if I have, if we need to talk or by email that, um, you know, why, why do Zoom? Obviously for something like this, you have to do it. So you have initiated me now. Um, And I don't know, I may stay Zoom averse as I call it. (laughs) I always give that excuse to my friend when they want to do Zoom. I say, 
oh, but I'm a Zuma verse. And they go, oh yeah, I guess that must be a thing. Yeah. So, uh, but I may, maybe I'll get over it. Um, do you know one thing I was thinking about looking at you there, um, Owen, is some of us, uh, I'm sure some of us will will identify with the old grey roots that are have been coming through during lockdown, but you don't have to be worrying about the hairdressers because you, a long, long time ago, just decided to... Yeah, well, it was, um, yeah, it's extremely liberating and I really um, recommend it. Um, I, I, I've, I used to have very long, dark hair and then you know, a few gray hairs appeared, but I also changed my hair all the time. I went really short, peroxide blonde, did all sorts of things. Then uh, about 15 years ago, I had my hair dark. Um, I co- was coloring it dark and um, it was about shoulder length and I had a, a bad accident and I was in hospital for two months and my gray roots, my white roots actually started coming like down to about here. And all I could think of is when I get out of here, I'm going to go blonde. And then I did. And it was the best thing I did. And yeah. they do have more fun, actually, I think maybe. So there. Do you know what I was talking about, about the um, sort of the theatre of extreme or that unsettling, disturbing mm-hmm. thing? Could you take us back to when you realised that that's the kind of theatre you were interested in, that the cosy kind of safe, traditional theatre was not going to be for you? Um, there's a few seminal experiences, I suppose. I remember going to see a production in, um, it was, it's, it's now, it was the Aula Maxima, which is now Moli, isn't it? I think, or anyway, um, on Stevens Green. And it was a student production directed by Jim Sheridan, I think, and Peter Sheridan playing Oedipus. And uh, Neil Jordan was in it and Des Hogan was in it and all these people who we come to know today. And um, it was completely non traditional presentation we came into this huge hall had to have kind of like a cross of ashes on our head um, and then we sat on scaffolding and we looked down at the action and we were like a kind of forum looking down at this action which just unfolded all the time and and I guess because of the the different frame where you're not just looking at something in that kind of letterbox presentation um, you're completely immersed in what is going on and you're full of questions and that I felt just kind of dissolved a boundary that we often have when we go and see something with a, a slightly more conventional or easier presentation so I think that would have been one of them but generally I mean I've always been interested in th- those those ways of accessing the unconscious where you go past the rational mind so even as a child I think my first my first uh, ambition was to be a contortionist in a circus because I am very, very flexible and I was able to go inside out and do the crab and everything. And people would look at me doing these things and go, Ugh. and I actually really liked that reaction. <laughs> so I, I'm very attracted by that thing, which seems to sort of break, break our everyday boundaries. Yeah. Do you think it was something to do with being um, somewhat of an outsider as well? Because, you know, I mentioned your parents come from Breton and I'd love you to tell the story of your of your parents coming to Wales first, because there's a great story of how how your dad had had to leave Wales to come to Ireland. They were already um, political refugee. Well, my father was political refugee. My mother obviously wasn't politically involved, but she was with him and married and everything. And uh, they had left. They'd had to leave France and they were living in Wales for two years, I think it was. And um, then the police came to deport him back to France. But um, Winfrey Evans, who we were living with at the time, I wasn't born yet, um, uh, intervened on his behalf. So they allowed him to leave the country within 24 hours. And the story is, and I, uh, different members of my family have different versions of this story, but the story is, the story that I remember is that he arrived uh, in Dublin he had um, he didn't have any of the phone numbers of his friend. He had one really really good friend in Dublin who was actually Mary Lavin's then husband, William Walsh. Didn't have his contact with them or anything. He had three pounds in his pocket, and he walked down Grafton Street and bumped into William. <laughs> so he was okay, and then he was able to continue all his contacts after that. Then. So you grew up. They went over to Connemara, and you grew up in this quite remote kind of idyllic in some ways. Uh, upbringing but also you had to go to boarding school you went to that fantastic building 
Kylemore Abbey, which we, we know of. What was that experience like growing up in Connemara and how did it shape you, do you think? Oh, I think, I think uh, growing up in Connemara at that, in that part of the world, right out on the edge of the Atlantic was uh, hugely part of my formation. Um, I feel very fortunate actually that, that that's where I was born and grew up because I think uh, I had a completely different perception and understanding of the world than I would have if I'd grown up in a little village in Brittany. Um, and, uh, and also, I guess, yeah, we were, I, I did feel like an outsider because I, I, I remember refusing to speak French at home because I wanted to assimilate with, the, with what was going on outside. So I said, no, I'm only going to speak English. Um, so that part of it was absolutely wonderful. But definitely going away to boarding school was, was painful. And I, I kind of, even though Kyle Moore was a beautiful place and the Benedictine nuns were very good nuns, I mean, they're very singular and um, independent and self-sufficient and the, the only order of Benedictine nuns in Ireland. And so they were great and the place was great, but I was incredibly missing my mother. I was only about six years old. Uh, I had a sister with me, but she was like, you know, she was the next one up and she was in her own thing. And then after that, we, we were sent to boarding school in Dublin. This was all because my parents were moving around a lot and didn't feel that they could leave us just in the local school with somebody looking after us. But I do regret hugely not having gone to the local school. And then you ended up in Cabra. Yeah, which is a nightmare. <laughs> I always say to my nephews and nieces, you know, my schooling was a total waste of time. When they were small, they used to come and stay with me and they'd go home and their, their, their parents, one of my brothers or sisters, sisters would say, very unsettled when he came back. <laughs> because I would be saying, waste of time going to school. <laughs> I love it. Well, I mean, to, to be sort of transported from that lovely, you know, West of Ireland scenario into pretty much inner city Dublin must have been a bit of a culture shock at the time. Well, didn't really, ex- if it had been inner city Dublin and if I was going to a day school, I think it would have been yeah. extraordinary. It was being in basically boarding school as a prison, you know, and not only that, but you're, it's like a single sex prison. So we were, we were all falling in love with the, with the priest and the painter who might come or the gardener who might turn up. <laughs> but, you know, like you're completely in a completely false environment. And I really didn't like being in a segregated school. But there wasn't really any um, co-ed schools in Ireland at the time. Or if they were, they were probably pre- very expensive and private and everything. Yeah. So how did theatre come into your world? I mean, was it something that you came across in school? Is that where you got your first you know, feelings for it? Yeah, well, there was that circus experience. And I think the first circus I saw, I was 10 years old. But I did, there were a few like school things in Kyle Moore, I remember, doing a ballet dance. And uh, <laughs> for some, for like the Christmas show or something. And then I remember, um, I don't remember going to see any theatre really at all until I, until my teens but then when I was in Cabra, there were a couple of school plays. And I remember getting a part in a play called Isagon, uh, but it, which is an Irish play, but it, we were doing it in English. And I was playing a little a boy uh, who's kind of like a, a fisherman's son. And I, I remember, I still remember my line. I had to look out and say, the horses are white in the fisherman's garden, meaning... It was like very, very, you know, it was rough. The water was rough. And I loved playing the boy, you know, playing the little gurrier. <laughs> so, so that kind of was a little, and, and I remember the next day been getting a sleep in. I didn't have to get up and go into class and arriving in to the maths teacher who I was terrified of and everybody else was. And she stepped off her podium with a big smile on her face and she shook my hand. She said, congratulations. <laughs> and I thought, you, you understood the that's a good passport into the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so you didn't have any background. So when you went and literally knocking on the doors, you were coming at it very cold. I mean, you went to Focus Theatre and knocked on that door because you'd heard about them and you knew they were doing great stuff. Yeah. It was very cold. I mean, there were no training schools in Ireland at the time. The only training you could really do were like one-off classes or or, or I had heard about the focus. But my the first thing, I just had an inkling. I said, I want to find out more about this. I had been working on a dig on Wood Quay for about a year and a half, and that was just closed down. And I just was pulled towards this other thing. 
probably this was around the time that I started to see theatre. So maybe the one that I talked about or seeing Beckett in the Abbey with Mary Keane doing Happy Days. I've never seen anything like that. Um, so I had started to go to theatre and I started to get interested. I thought maybe I would get involved as a, as a set designer, a visual artist. And um, so I, I remember doing some elocution or kind of like drama classes with Chris Casson in The Gate was such a sweet man. Um, and it was real old traditional style, you know. And some, a friend of mine who was in that class, a friend of mine called Kate Kelly, she's still a good friend, actually. She um, said, you know, their Focus Theatre does these weekend um, Stanislavski studio sessions. So you should go. I kind of thought about it for a while. And then I, and as you say, I wonder, one day I wandered up to the door of the Focus and I went to knock on it. And then I went, I know I won't bother. And I started to walk away again. <laughs> then I went, ah, where I went. So I went back again and I knocked on the door and Deirdre O'Connell opened it. I was just wondering if I could sit in and watch the Stanislavski studio sessions. And I don't know if I want to be an actor or, or maybe a set designer or anything. And she just said, well, of course, you'd be very welcome to come, but you have to take part. You can't watch. And that's how it all started. And t- tell me, how did that feel being suddenly thrust into somewhere like that? I mean, very different to anything you'd experienced probably. Yeah, now. it was. I mean, um, no, it was fantastic, actually, because it was such a, it was such, it, the, the, the training, while I don't use many aspects of the training, but the training definitely gives you a sort of, it, it makes you go inside to discover what, what you can offer, really. You know, it's, it's kind of works from the inside out as opposed to from the outside in. And of course, both ways are really valuable you know, craft on the one hand, but also internal kind of impulse and motivation on the other. Um, so it was, I mean, I, I, I went pretty faithfully most weekends. And then I was, uh, been going about six months when they asked me to play a small role in one of their lunchtime shows. So that's how it all started. Really. And look at you now. <laughs> but I'm always threatening to give it up. Like I always say, okay, I'll keep, <laughs> I keep trying this for another while. <laughs> <laughs> so 40-something years later, I'm still doing it. I'm glad you went back to knock again. Um, you you describe theatre as uh, an act of, or art anyway, it's resistance. Um, yeah. it, it's pushing against something. And that's very much your um, sort of modus operandi. It's the opposite of safe. It's the opposite of your comfort zone. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, it's a it's hard thing to articulate, but I think... Most art is a kind of an, an act of resistance, really. I mean, I think it's about creating a space for another kind of reality to exist, which is an alternative to the current reality or the prescribed reality that we live in or that we are programmed towards. And, and I, think, um, I, I think a lot of our life, anyway, as artists, are definitely you're, 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 you're trying to shift you're trying to shift the, the boundaries of that of that prescribed reality and, and open up the world and the imagination to all the other possibilities of how we can think and live. Mm-hmm. And as a journalist, I'm sure you know that as well. You know, I mean, a lot of your work does that. Well, it's just interesting that you talk about that this time, because I think that's uh, this time has upended a lot of that for us, hasn't it? It's kind of allowed us all to look again with fresh eyes about the things that we thought we wanted or thought we needed and maybe realizing we don't. And you've done, you did a beautiful spoken word piece on that subject, kind of like it's called where, where I am now. Yeah. Well, the Dublin dance festival had a digital capsule where they did a, a week of lots of online, um, very interesting stuff. Some of them were films, some of them were classes, some of them were debates and Helen Meany was asked to curate one particular section of it called Where I Am Now, where she asked eight different artists to offer a, an, an essay on, um, you know, to reflect on their work in the context of the pandemic. So we, we all did it in different ways. Some of us did audio pieces. Some of us did it to camera. Um, I did an audio piece because because I, I was a bit, you know, this averse. <laughs> Zoom and camera averse. I'm not anymore. It's brilliant. <laughs> And um, I don't know, I mean, like you heard it. I don't know if you would like me to read a bit of it. Or... I'd love you to read a bit of it, yes. Okay. I mean, obviously this piece was, was conceived to, to, to work with music. And it, there's a very particular piece of music called The Song of Separation and Waiting by Pandit Sultan Khan, an Indian uh, composer. Um, 
which my friend Matthew Barley, the cellist, recorded and gave me permission to use. And it's a fantastic piece. So if if after this you want to track it down and find it, it's nice to it's better to listen to it with music. But anyway, um, so he, here's kind of the bones of it. Uh, apocalypse means revelation, uncovering. Not only the crazy imbalances in our world, in our societies, in our relationship to the planet and other life forms, but also the contents of our minds and our own programming. We're all reimagining what our purpose is. And there is something spiritually profound about what we're all living through. How do we embrace uncertainty, live with mystery, make peace with ambiguity? Insofar as I'm envisaging work, I'm thinking of the eloquence of space, how the body is a mysterious thing, how it moves through space, how it adapts to gravity, how the body imparts its strength and fragility mysteriously, kinesthetically, in live performance, and how there is something sacred in all that, in what we dance, in how we make music, and how hazardous the world can become when the body begins to speak with words, as I am now. So much of what we have been told as fundamental to artistic survival, like ambition, and productivity and status have been revealed to be hollow. We always knew that. There is a saying in politics, never let a good crisis go to waste. Now is the time to grab capitalism by the throat and throw it out. I don't know how we do that, but we can make it happen and be part of it by how we think and live. Only dead fish go with the flow. Our existence, an act of resistance, an idea embedded in a vision, arrayed on what has not yet been articulated. So, consider this to be the gloaming when it is too dark to navigate by the landscape and it will get darker still. But then we'll be able to navigate by the heavens. How lucky are we all to have experienced that? You're just, you know, I can't tell you how many people today said to me, Owen, women, I have a girl crush on her. I love her. And someone here just said, I want to be Owen when I grow up. (laughs) And I don't know what it is. I just think you're so unique in that. Like, I think you had us all mesmerized there. Um, oh, good. <laughs> okay. Oh, it was beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, and people are really curious about you in lots of ways. I mean, you spoke about your childhood there. And one of the things you spoke to me, I think in this lockdown, a lot of us have been evaluating our relationships, the relation, the significant relationships we have. Some of them are coming up trumps. Some of them maybe not quite so much. And it's been quite a difficult time for women in many ways, this, this lockdown. Could you talk to me a bit about your own relationships? Because it's something you've spoken about in the past, being more open to a different type of relationship than what we in Ireland particularly have been kind of told, this is what you do. You grow up, you get married, you have one partner and you have two partners. Could you talk to us a bit about that a bit? Um, well, it's a bit difficult to talk about it right now because, you know, you want to be sensitive and everything like that. But I, I guess, you know, I, I guess there's certain things happen in certain times of our lives and um, and we have to, you know, we have to make a decision. And I think love is something you have to honor. Um, you shouldn't walk away from it. I think uh, it's like a responsibility to the universe in some kind of way. And I think we have to be able to be very honest and be able to um, sort it out, discuss it, embrace it. Um, and I've been very lucky to to have um, a partner who has embraced it, not necessarily happily, but, you know, this is how it's been. And um, And of course, things change all the time. And I, I don't really know how what the future is right now, but um, but I think the other kind of relationships that I find very interesting to analyze and um, and interrogate 
is, you know, the whole concept of family and family relationships. Because, I mean, I, I'd be very Marxist in my view in relation to family that, you know, like that, that the idea that the family is a kind of ideological apparatus, um, which is uh, functions to, I'm, I'm actually got it written down here, um, <laughs> functions to promote values that ensure the reproduction and maintenance of capitalism. The family is described as an ideological apparatus. This means it socializes people to think in a way that justifies inequality and encourages people to accept the capitalist system as fair, natural, and unchangeable. One way in which this happens is that there is a hierarchy in most families, which teaches children to accept that there will always be someone in authority who they must obey, which then mirrors the hierarchy of boss worker in paid employment in later life. I mean, I've got various other things uh, written down there, but um, so so that's that'll be my fundamental feeling that it's a, the kind of core unit of capitalism. And the other thing is, what I find quite horrifying in the Irish Constitution is Article Forty One, where it says the state recognises the family as the natural, primary, and fundamental unit group of society, and as a moral institution possessing inalienable, imprescriptible, whatever that means, rights antecedent and superior to all positive law. I find that actually quite alarming and a bit frightening. And uh, I mean, we only have to even look at the papers a couple of days ago to see what happens in families. And I think that, um, I think that you know, like the, I was look, reading up about this recently, actually, how, um, you know, obviously domestic abuse has increased during the lockdown, um, but domestic abuse in the last few years the reporting of it has been the amount of female abuse as well females abusing their partners has risen so that's maybe it's reported more uh, and the amount of sibling abuse has risen uh, particularly sisters apparently sisters against uh, against their siblings so you know that, that's part of the female um, abuse um, paradigm of, of uh, domestic abuse so I think that these things are all connected and um, uh, so they're, they're relationships that I'm very interested in analyzing. I, I know there's probably lots of my family watching at the moment, so I hope you don't, <laughs> don't take insult. But any of you, it's other maybe they other probably people. even agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> they probably, they probably will. Escape the ordinary with Green and Black's organic chocolate, sponsor of the Women's Podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savor. Tell me a bit about River Run, because that is such an iconic piece that traveled the world. You know, it was acclaimed all over the place and it's Bloomsday. It was Bloomsday on Tuesday, I think. So Joyce is somebody that you've you obviously are um, have an affinity and a fondness for his work as well as Beckett. Um, it was kind of one of those light bulb moments for you. Weren't you were everyone's always looking for that creative inspiration. And that really came to you because you opened up to it. It's a, it's a good story. Would you mind telling us about it, how it came about? How it came about? Yeah, I mean, I've, 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 I've told this story a few times, and but anyway, forgive me for telling it again, but, but, I, but I still think it's wonderful. <laughs> um, I, um, I was always interested in Finnegan's Wake, in the, in, the, in the material of Finnegan's Wake. Just love the language and the, the way he's, he likes so, he de- deconstructs it so much and he embeds so many languages in it. And it's like, it's just a, it's just beautiful and um, and really subversive as well. But I could never work out. I thought, well, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, how could you perform it? Because like, what would you perform and everything like that? I needed an access point. And also actually, I think it was, in, it was still in copyright anyway. And about simultaneously with it going out of copyright, I happened to be asked uh, to uh, read something for Bloomsday in Australia. Bloomsday's to becoming key for Bloomsday in Australia and um, in Sydney when I was there on tour, it was in 2010. And I said, okay, I'll read a bit of Molly if you let me read a bit of Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> so they said, sure. So I read the last page of Finnegan's Wake, which is where the river disappears into the ocean. And it's a kind of a death and, re- and a rebirth. And it's absolutely, I mean, if anybody wants to read Finnegan's Wake, start at the back page and just work backwards because it's just extraordinary. I don't know why people begin at the beginning and try to get through it because it's impossible. And I've never read the whole thing either. Um, I think it's, it's like, I think the Finnegan's Wake is like the I Ching. You open it at random and you will find something extraordinary, which will speak to you right now. 
but um, but to try and go through it in a linear way probably won't work. But anyway, um, so that so I had this eureka moment, and literally I read I read in, in this big public library in in uh, in Sydney. I read that last page where the river disappears into the ocean, and I had hair stood up back of my neck and the tongue of fire descended. And it was the real classic inspiration moment, which rarely happens that way. But um, anyway, it was one of those moments and I stepped off the podium and I just said out loud, that's my next piece, the voice of the river. And I, next day I was on to everybody saying, I'm working on this now and blah, blah, blah. blah. And about, um, I took like about three years later, it had its premiere, yeah. And I just have to apologize there, Owen, in case you heard that. There's five little girls having a water fight right outside the window. And these are the kind of things you just, this is why you're Zoom averse, because this is the kind of thing that happens. Yeah, well, I don't mind that. I, I quite like the real world, you know. Um, Simon made a lovely point about what you were saying earlier. And she's saying, I feel everyone has learned through the lockdown that the nuclear family is a myth. We all need more love than that, even when that family is loving and happy. And domestic abuse is related to this primacy of the nuclear family in patriarchal societies, overextended family and community. And she says she's loving it so much. And oh, when you're a warrior, I think warrior is a great word for you. Oh, well, thank you, Simone. That means a lot because like, I so share what you're saying there. Um, so it's great to have it because one's sometimes a little bit wary of talking about family in this way. You know, it's a bit controversial, but yet the amount of people I've mentioned it to and they all go, yeah. <laughs> so, I think it's something that we're all maybe dying to talk about, but there's never really an opening, especially when you've grown up in a, when everything's very prescribed and this is how it is. Yeah. So how do you break out of that? But um, you said you were a Marxist. Are you a bit of an anarchist as well? I mean, you seem to want to open yeah. everything. I mean, I don't know, like I'm not a political theorist, theorist and I don't really know, but I just know there's certain things that drive me crazy and that, and that and, I, and it's to do with the system and how it's constructed and how we think and everything. So I think, yeah, I mean, I suppose I would fundamentally be anarchist but, 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 um, or Marxist, but I, I, it's, it's hard for me to say really what I am, but I know I'm hugely against inequality and the inequality of wealth. I mean, I think this I think this obsession with property in this country specifically is going to destroy the country. Um, and I would love, I just think that this is a great moment for real change as people voted for. Uh, I think, yes, it, it will be risk. It will be a risk, but I just think it's got to happen, you know. Um, I think this is the moment for us to grab capitalism by the throat and throw it out. And I love the way you say, I don't know how we're going to do that, but let's uh, Yeah, it. I know. And I don't, I don't know how we're going to do that. But I, I, I kind of think if enough of us talk about it and say it, that we'll start, you know, being able to just implement it slowly. Uh, there's so much to learn as well, because we are very programmed to think in a particular way. And I mean, I discover how, how programmed I am so often. I'm going, why do I feel I have to have that? Or why do I think, why am I really thinking that? Because it's always been like that. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about grief and loss? Because like most of us, you've experienced it. And um, maybe perhaps about how you deal with it or have dealt with it in the past. Well, I think loss, grief, trauma, all of those things, they, they kind of make or break you, really. Um, I think it's been proven that trauma is passed on genetically even. Um, so there's no getting away from it. So the only way I think one can deal with it is to make it part of your life. So loss or grief is part of your life. And as, as something that is part of your life, I find that it also uh, nourishes your life. So it's kind of like, you know, loss, loss is also a kind of a gift is the way I think of it and the way I experience it, that for everything that's taken away or everything that, you know, that you've lost, that in some ways that the, the losing or the grieving is also coming back to you in another way, a different form of sensitivity. Um, you know, I mean, I often think that, you know, because I know you're, you're, you're referring to the loss of two, my two children, but in many ways I feel they're with me when I'm making stuff. You know, that I had that physical experience touch me on a physical level, which becomes part of your whole spiritual aura and and they're always there you know like little magicians <laughs> helping you out <laughs> yeah. 
And did that take a long time for you to come to that place? You know, because I think you have spoken about that before. And I think it's a beautiful image of somehow that grief and loss enhancing you in some way. And you've spoken about how they're not here, but you are. it allows you to live the life you're living. You're very much connecting those. Totally. This is the other thing is that, you know, if if I I know the kind of person I am, um, that I'm very, very single minded and I'm not a multitasker of any kind. And uh, and I know had I two children, I would not have I not would not be living the life I'm living. I would not have lived the life that I've lived. Um, I have extraordinary freedom. Um, I feel incredibly fortunate with my life. And and I'm going, well, maybe, you know, I kind of go, well, maybe that's what they gave me. <laughs> yeah. And they're buried on Omi Island, aren't they? And you go and visit them. Yeah, yeah, they're buried together beside one another, um, and a lovely grave at the uh, grave at the corner of the graveyard, uh, which children often come and put things on and everything like that. Children love that grave. You know, they come and they clean the they clean the thing. I mean, you find new things on the grave all the time. Like the kids have left. It's kind of beautiful, really. Um, so yeah, they're there and uh, buried in sand, which is always beautiful, of course, as well, as opposed to being buried in earth. Oh, yeah. um, I want to ask you about Sean Penn because I'm just being completely nosy and wanting some gossip. What was he like to work with? I, I thought he was fabulous to work with. Uh, he was going through a really hard time because he had just, I think he had just gotten his divorce papers from uh, Robin uh, Wright Penn um, and he had just turned 50, but he was very, he really loved Paolo Sorrentino. Um, he really trusted him. So I think he was happy, you know, he was happy in the work. And um, I mean, I've heard other things since, you know, on other films, but he was great on that one. And the scenes that we had, he was very, very present on and off camera. Um, so I really felt, you know, I, when the camera wasn't on him, I could still really work very strongly with him and he'd give it back to me fully. And I really liked him. I thought he was great. And plus, he was one of the Hollywood actors that I have the most you know, admiration for, for many, many years. So. And what uh, about Mandy with your head getting chopped off? Cause I have, I haven't actually seen that. My friend Simon said, you have to ask her about that. Yeah. Well, Mandy's an amazing film. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's the whole thing is like an acid trip and I've never really taken acid, but that's how I imagine it is. <laughs> it's like, a, it's like an LSD. List, is it on? Yeah, it's on my bucket list. <laughs> But I'm terribly drug sensitive, so it probably wouldn't be a good idea. No, all one fuere on acid. We need to make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but it's amazing. Like the guy who made it, Panos Cosmatos. It's it's only his second film in ten years, and his father was a filmmaker who made a lot of the Rocky films, Rambo films, I think. Anyway, um, he Panos is extraordinary. He, he's he's like his mind is completely made up of sort of graphic novels and all these kind of weird things, but he's a true artist and a lovely guy to work with. And when I got the script, I remember I was going, well, I'm not sure about the script. Is it just gratuitous bits of violence and this and that and the other? And then I watched a film, the previous film he'd made called, I think it's called Beyond the Black Rainbow. Sorry, I should have looked that up. But anyway, uh, I, I watched that and I went, oh, I get it. I see the way he's working. Everything is in like, almost like slow motion, sort of slightly distorted and everything. So I had immediate access to the script through that. And then it, then I was offered the role and it was, it was fantastic. I mean, I only had one scene with Nicolas Cage. Um, and at that point it was just before he kills me anyway. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the whole, the whole experience was, was, was wonderful actually. And, and, and Nicolas Cage is brilliant in it. I would never have been a fan before, but I must say seeing that I went, that's, it's like he's a kind of like he's a sort of abstract expressionist of film. That's the only way I could describe it. Well, I hope he's not listening, saying that you didn't think you didn't like anything else he's done except that. <laughs> well, well, I have liked other things, but I kind of he wouldn't be on my you know radar really. Yeah. And when it was Nicholas, but Andrea Riseborough, who's in it, was, certainly was, and she's amazing, you know. And I was a huge fan of hers. But Nicholas Cage, I wasn't. But then when I saw the film, I went, God, he's brilliant in it. But another thing you're in soon is a thing called Cursed on Netflix. So we'll all get to see that. Tell us about <coughs> that. There's a lot of prosthetics involved in that too. Yeah, I mean, I play um, a kind of a sorceress. Who's, and when I was asked to, to do it, that's all I knew. It was a sorceress. 
then I arrived for the costume fitting and, and sort of they were putting on this prosthetic. I had to do a cast and they put it on prosthetic. And I said, what's this? And they said, well, you're a moon wing. I said, well, what's a moon wing? <laughs> I didn't even know. Like none of this was told to me. So I had these wings and, you know, my ears are back and I had all these different things going on. Uh, and it took about six hours every time. So I remember the day that I had the most scenes to do I was called in at my call was quarter to four in the morning. And then I was prosthetics and makeup for six hours and then went straight on set and worked nonstop on all the scenes until seven o'clock at night. So by the time I got to that, my mind was gone. But um, no, I mean, I don't have a big partner or anything like that, but it was a lovely little experience, actually. And they're lovely people to work with because the, the creators are also writers of graphic novels as well. I seem to be, that's my genre now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the out there sort of stuff. Um, but um, so it's basically the story, that the same as the Arthurian story, the story of King Arthur, but told by the Lady of the Lake. Ah. Uh, so it's the reversal of the King Arthur legend. I think the tagline was, what if, what if the sword was meant for a queen? Or yeah. Something like yeah, and that's Catherine Langford who plays her. What is the thing you look back on and you're most proud of, Owen, when you look back? I mean, you've done so much work and so many diverse things. And maybe that's a ridiculous or hard question, but is there anything that you kind of feel very deeply satisfied by and that you can, you know, if you did nothing else, you could say, I've done that? Yeah, there's so many, though. I mean, I'm I'm very lucky in that, really. And and I guess I, 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 I I usually only choose to do something if I've had that little fire is lit you know um in me um and and yeah sometimes I I mean obviously River Run would be the last real thing I'm satisfied with and so the survivalist that film by Stephen Finkelton which I think is a brilliant film and very much a film of this time I don't know if you've seen it but it's yeah. it's really superb movie um and it's it's, it's a kind of post-apocalyptic film but nature is thriving it's just humans have reduced to seven million uh, from uh, exhausting fossil fuels and just what it does to the society and you know all all the all the things we were talking about earlier like you know families and all that kind of stuff that's all kind of you know mix in the mix um and it's basically a kind of a three-hander between myself martin mccann who plays the survivalist and mia goth who plays my daughter and it's a it's i think it's a superb movie and i'm really really proud of it and i think of the movies i've done that's definitely the one i'm the most proud of so that one um and um, uh, actually, recently I did a, a documentary on Violet Gibson, drama documentary on Violet Gibson, the woman who shot Mussolini. And, um, and, and that, that's turning out to be really interesting, but it's kind of not out in the public yet. It premiered in the Fe- Dublin Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at it. Well, I, I think the other things would be like Salome with the Stephen Burkhoff production. That would be very proud of that one. Um, and I think the work that I did with uh, Roger Doyle in the early days, you know, operating theatre, the first solo show we did, which was called The Diamond Body, um, 1984, where I played a transgender, transgender, transitioning man to being, a, to being a hermaphrodite. I mean, that was 1984. That was, <laughs> and then you played a man in that other film. What was the name of that one? He was a cool guy. The cowboy type dude in the... Pat McCabe thing. Yes, Pat McCabe. Like Roy Monson. That's it. <laughs> Roy Monson. I'm going to go to Nullock here and keep the Northern accent going and ask Nullock to unmute. Nullock, are you there? Yes, I am. Loving your bookshelves, loving your nice white, very clean couch. Well done. Oh, well, <laughs> not always. But um, I wanted to ask Baldwin, and I, I know that um, I saw her in the in the 80s in, in her work with Roger Doyle and was absolutely really impressed. And for the first time, I had a sense of, um, a distinctive kind of voice coming from Ireland in a very contemporary way. But I wanted to ask you, Orwin, um, you know, reflecting back on, on theatre and how much the, that you have uh, accomplished, you and your colleagues, what kind of characteristics have emerged in the last decades that you would see as a distinctive Irish theatre now? Well, well, I think there's an incredibly strong and inspired and inspiring uh, young theatre community. They're, they're, they're addressing theatre in a completely different way than, you know, would have been 
in my time. Um, and there, and and you know, looking at theatre as being not definitely not confined to a building. I mean, you look at the work of Anu. You look at the work of I mean, there's so many of them out there. Broken Talkers. Uh, also the um, the also the boundaries between the art forms have 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 really dissolved much more than existed in my time. Um, so if I was starting off now, I wouldn't be, you know, a weirdo like I was then. I wouldn't be considered a weirdo like I was then. I'd be just like one of, you know, I feel this is much more my kind of world in terms of theatre actually at the moment, what's going on. And and I think, um, so I think the fact that uh, Irish theatre is kind of opening its, itself up in terms of form to a, a huge degree um, and is kind of getting closer, not just in terms of experimentation and the avant-garde and everything like that, but I think getting getting closer to maybe the European tradition as well. There's a little bit more connection with Europe. There was very little uh, in my time. Um, most theatre and film basically, uh, well, theatre is different. It's kind of complex. There's a history there, but um, certainly film for the first 10 or 15 or 20 years here in Ireland was kind of air, it just completely followed the Hollywood model. Mm. Now it's completely changed. Like certain people like Lenny Abrahamson who've completely changed the, the parameters, you know? Um, so I would say that uh, Irish theatre has, has that fantastic um, ability to address, you know, the issues of form. And also um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the one of the problems with Irish theatre had been that it always measured itself against England, uh, and I think that is that is not happening so much now. I think there's a more individuality. There's more. There's less group thinking. There's less feeling that uh, less colonization actually <laughs> in the minds of the theatre makers. I'm going to come to Marion. Marion, I'm going to unmute you. Are you there? Hi. Hi. Hi, Marion. Hi. Um, um, I was just wondering, do you ever worry about work not coming in or has that ever at this stage is it something that features for you? And then do, what do you do if you do have downtime? Do you, I can imagine you're very creative. You're chilling out. That's what yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'm ch- I mean, I, I love doing nothing. I mean, I, you know, when people say to me, what are you going to do on your day off? Nothing. <laughs> I love doing nothing. And actually, I think it's really important to do nothing and to remove the I must do, I must do, I must do. Particularly, actually, I felt that very strongly during this time, this this lockdown period, because there's such a there was such a pressure for productivity, you know, and I felt, hang on, is that my capitalist mindset again? <laughs> you know, um, that I that I felt it was much it was a time to listen and to, to absorb what's happening, you know, to be a receiver rather than a transmitter. Um, so, but I think, no, I don't worry about work not coming because I guess I feel that I'm always working in a way that um, when, if I'm not doing a film or if I'm not doing a piece of theatre, if I'm not making a piece of theatre, I've always got 101 things that I want to be doing, you know, whether it's writing something. Um, I'm really lazy too. You know, my my friends have been one of my Roger Doyle actually has been sending me you know text and um, to record with music and everything like that, and it took ages for me. And I kept saying, no, I have to get into the zone, and you know it's and I kept putting it off. So um, I think I'm lazy, but I also enjoy doing nothing. I'm um, I think for me the you know like if you were to say to me, what's your ideal downtime environment? I would say uh, the in the middle of the in the middle of the desert, nothing going on, uh, and maybe there's an ocean nearby. That's oh, it. Really. I'm here. I'm feeling you there, all, and I'm I'm loving it. There's there's a lot to be said for doing nothing and laziness. I think more should be people should be admired more for that. It's it's an unadmired skill. Yeah, because I mean, you know, when you're doing things, and sometimes you're not you're not actually living the moment. I mean, you, know, you don't see things, you don't hear things in the same way. There's nothing better than just, you know, and I think everybody's been saying that about this period, how they're seeing, I don't think it's just that the animals have come into the city. I think people are seeing them now, you know. Ah, I I think there's also that. And we're hearing the birds because we have time to hear them, not just that they're going, wow, this is great. They're not moving around as much or whatever, you know. 
I know that's I like the way you're thinking there. Um, Mr. Ryder, I don't know if that's who your name is or if that's just who owns your computer, but I'm gonna ask Mr. Ryder to unmute Mr. Ryder. I'm not Mr. Ryder, it's yeah. I didn't think so. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine, that's fine. What's your name? Sorry. Uh, Mary. 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 I'm sorry about that, Mary. (laughs) No, I just had a the question I had for Alwyn was um I liked when you said about the boundaries between the art forms have lessened or dissolved. Yeah, dissolved. Oh, dissolved. That's even stronger. Yeah, well, dissolving. I think, but <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder what it was like then when you were part of Jess's uh, Tremble Tremble, representing Ireland and Venice, which was an extraordinary yeah. piece. Oh, that's I, that's another one I missed. So sorry. Actually, I should have mentioned that one in one of my big pri- proud things. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, was that very different from just general theatre, for example, or, you know, being in a confined space and uh, an audience? Because it, it was a separate piece mixed with other pieces. You know, there were lots yeah, of other, yeah. both static art as well mm-hmm. as visual art as well as performing art well i've i've always worked i've worked with visual artists going way back to 1980 the first visual artist i worked with was james coleman and i did eight different pieces with james over the years um some of them were live some of them were filmed some of them were videos some of them are still being shown all around the world um it was a retrospective of his work actually in emma in i'm trying to think when it was maybe it was about 10 years ago where they remount, so st- some of the works that I had done with them were remounted. And one piece, the first piece mm-hmm. I did with them called So Different and Yet, which was an hour long piece, uh, videoed in, we videoed it in 1981 or whatever, uh, was mounted on a huge screen in the middle of the courtyard of Emma, an incredible soundscape. It was absolutely beautiful. And I remember walking into that mm-hmm. courtyard and going, oh God, this is one of my proudest moments. It was just so fantastic to see it alive again after all those years and it still does the rounds but the pre- that actual mm-hmm. presentation was fantastic so working with James was wonderful because I because I think I was oriented towards the visual arts first as opposed to theatre I think had I been to an art school I would have ended up as a performance artist but I didn't even know performance art existed mm-hmm. you know when I started and um, Nigel Rolfe was the first performance artist I ever saw in the project uh, which was great because we'd come in to, to, to do the play and Nigel would be still rolling around in flower <laughs> last three days and we'd carry on in because the yes. foyer of the project was also the gallery. So people would be coming in buying their tickets and Nigel would still be... <laughs> it was wonderful. But anyway, so I've done all that work with James Coleman. I've done also other work. Um, I've done two pieces with uh, a French artist called Aurélien Froment, mm-hmm. which were... Um, one of them was filmed in in um, Venezia, in this old theatre in Venezia. We filmed it over a week. And uh, and I did another two different audio stuff for him, for pieces. And then, and then Jesse, when Jesse and Tessa invited me to work with them, I was just thrilled because I was a big admirer of Jesse's. Um, but we didn't really know each other. And, um, and then we met once a month for nearly a year and then we kind of rehearsed for about a week but not really rehearsed it was more like just discussing what the different shots would be I mean she's an extraordinary person she's an extraordinary artist she really is and then we shot it over two days in a on a sound stage in Dunleary College of Art and that was it mm. and then every time it's been remounted it's had new elements brought to it mm. I haven't been around really for a lot of the remountings but funnily enough that you should mention uh, Tremble Tremble because it, we just, it's just finished doing a run um, at, the, at the end of February. It, it had been running for three months in the Guggenheim Museum That's in Bilbao. Nice. And it was amazing there because she brought in elements from the Basque um, kind of witchcraft tradition and everything like that. It was very strong there. And we're about to start working on a new piece, which is going to be for television. Wow, that's exciting. Really good news. Thank you, Mary, for that. I'm sorry for calling you Mr. Ryder. This is just the days of Zoom. (laughs) Just on that, Owen, before we come to one more question from Inez Collins, who I'm going to unmute in a second. What have you got coming up? Because you've got some exciting things. I know you can't talk about all of them, but we you in lockdown, kind of the offers are now starting to come thick and fast, and there's one the horizon. Well, there was one really exciting film which uh, I was to start at the end of April and it got 
no, start at the end of March. Then it got postponed to the end of April, which I thought was a little bit, um, what's the word, optimistic. And now it's it's supposed to be happening from the beginning of August, but it can't be confirmed, really. I mean, and it's a mm-hmm. big production with people be flying in all over the world and all of that. So I don't know, you know, just waiting, really. And then um, another film which has come in happening exactly the same time with the TBC to be confirmed dates exactly the same and uh, and another couple of things as well that I would love to I really really want to do and it's very hard to know whether these things will balance out you know will I be able to do them all or if I say no to one will the other one actually happen at all so it's a kind of tricky time but I feel very fortunate to have all these things on the table so lucky and um and I, and I I do want to do them all so I'm going to make sure I can do the both. <laughs> yeah, because so many artists struggling. And I was at least it was something to hear the government announce this week, or Leo, that there's 25 million uh, euro for some kind of artist fund. I mean, it's it's going to be tough times ahead, but at least that yeah. showed some willing to try and engage with that um, issue because the arts are so important and they get a lot of lip service, but not necessarily the funding yeah. that 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 it needs. Yeah, I know. I think I think it was a even just symbolically a really important moment and and it's thanks to the national campaign for the arts really who who kind of constructed the proposals and all that kind of stuff and we have a wonderful new person on the arts council as well Maureen Canelli the and and so you know like i think and it's also an a fantastically strong resilient community which of course is our downfall because everybody knows we'll still we'll still work it out if we make it happen you know even if it's even if we don't have the funds but um i think it's really important it's just you know com- compared to so many european countries it's a the, the, the lack of um I said, the lack of uh, respect that's implied by the fact that the funding is so low for the arts is extraordinary when when the arts are used as a sort of passport to so many things. Yeah. Irish culture is used as a passport to so many things. Mm. I'm going to ask Inez to ask a question. Finally, are you unmuted, Inez? Hi, Alwyn. I've I've been looking, watching you, and watching all your work since the 80s. And uh, but I definitely think the most powerful thing I ever saw you perform was River Run. Well, thank you. Like you were that river. And I can't believe that you didn't read the whole of Finnegan's Wake because you <laughs> need to say the whole of Finnegan's Wake in the performance. And um, it was just like being in the river with you. It was so extraordinary. I was, it was in the project and I was sitting very near the front and such a powerful performance. Thank you so much for it. It was wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot, you know. It really does. And uh, now it it is. It was a. It was an extraordinary piece for me. I think it's the most joyous piece of work I've ever made. And also, I think it was the first one where I really, um, you know, when I when I had the idea, I thought I've got to talk to all these academics and you know work it all out and you know do everything proper. And then I and then I had a kind of eureka, another eureka moment where I thought, no, it's actually offered to us to author our own way through it. And I think that's for the reader as well. You know, it's not just, and, but so I thought, no, I'm going to author my own way through it. And there's a wonderful book by John Bishop who died three or four weeks ago. I never met him, an academic Californian. And he wrote this wonderful book called Joyce's Book of the Dark. And he, his, his, um, his, his way of approaching Finnegan's Wake was very similar to mine, where he just would dip in and dip in and dip in. So he was really inspiring to me in terms of how it's for us to author our way through it. Um, and so I, I kind of felt, I, w- I was quite scared, but also very excited. And, um, and, and I really kind of felt, after a while I felt, I'm not doing this, something else is doing this. I'm just like the channel. And that's the best feeling you can have as an actor is when you're just like, okay, come in and go out. You know? <laughs> and you're not like trying to make it anymore, you know? So it was a very, um, there's a possibility actually we might be doing it again fairly soon, but again, that's another discussion. <laughs> well, listen, Owen, we're going to have to wrap it up. I, I'm just so grateful. I know I can see because what I love doing is looking, flicking through all the faces. I can see how entranced everyone was. There's a couple of people said here that they knew very little about you before today and they're absolutely entranced and so intrigued by you. And uh, it's it's just been such a gorgeous evening. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it too. 
Owen, do you want to leave us with any last little lockdown words um, of inspiration or anything you've learned in this time? And then we'll say goodbye. One last thing I actually do want to say is that while lockdown has been a wonderful time for me, I know it's been a devastating time for an awful lot of people and my heart goes out to them. I, you know, I just want to want to say that, that 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 has never been far from my mind. For whom this time has been very, very difficult. So um, Godspeed. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed it all. And we've so appreciated having you and especially that spoken word piece you did. Could you just tell everyone where they can find it? Because I know there's a few people asking the, the dance festival piece where they can get yeah. it. Oh, gosh. Um, I think if they look up Dublin Dance Festival Digital Capsule and then scroll down and look up where I am now, you'll find it in there. Brilliant. Well, this is where we all are now and we only have this moment anyway. So thank you so much, everyone. Thanks to the beautiful audience. Thank you, Owen Fuere. You're an absolute legend and I'm so grateful. Thank Thank you, Roisin. Really appreciate it. And that's all we have time for. Thanks so much to Olwen Fuere and our sponsors, Green and Blacks. We'll have another big night in for you in a couple of weeks. The podcast was produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Do get in touch by email on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com and on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast. We'll talk to you next time. And until then, stay safe and mind yourselves. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.